if our minds are not filled with wonder at the magnitude of the condescension that God made to redeem us, we either do not understand the magnitude of His holiness, the depths of our sin, or perhaps either one. But Paul says it this way, where sin did abound, grace did more abound. I'm just amazed by that. Thank you, Rob, for leading us in such meaningful time of worship as we celebrate this morning. Uh, we almost uh, endangered our Southern Baptist standing for there was very nearly some clapping going on during one of the songs. Please understand, I'm not against that. I just have no rhythm and I don't want to throw everybody off. I'm always the guy clapping on the anda of the beat or so. Um, I actually uh, like it when people clap. I just don't want to mess anybody up or be made fun of, which my family would gladly do. Today we're going to be picking up where we left off in First Peter and one of the reasons I want to get back to that is because uh, I just would actually like to finish a series. It seems like we start, we get sidetracked, uh, and then sometimes we get back to it, sometimes we don't. Um, and I, I know we got all the way through the 25th chapter of Genesis, and someday we need to go back and pick up there. But for now, we're going to try to finish in the next few weeks our, our series on First Peter. The other reason I wanted to get back to it is because it has just been such a rich and meaningful uh, study for me, and I hope it has been for you, but he, he just seems to be addressing so many things that are happening right now in our culture. But he does so in a unique way because I don't think there's any other epistle, uh, save perhaps Second Peter, but I don't think there's any other writer that puts together two words that you would ordinarily think do not go together, and that is suffering and joy. And yet Peter consistently talks about the joy in our struggles, the joy in our suffering, the joy in our sacrifice. And he does so in a way that is very typical of his writing. You begin to see a pattern, and we're only up to uh, chapter 3 today. But even through chapters 1 and 2, you see what he does is he gives us an admonition, and he points out what we benefit from it or what we gain from it. It's usually having something to do with joy in Christ or a hope in Christ. And then he tells us the why of of it. He, this is why we need to do this. And then he points us to Christ. And he does that over and over and over again. And he does not fail us today when he, we come to chapter 3 and you think, well, this is an odd place to really begin a sermon on joy. I told Tiffany this morning, I said, I'm just, I'm just going to preach on the joy of belonging. The joy of belonging or the joy of submission. Now, there's a couple of words that we don't think go together very often, particularly in our, our culture, and that is submission and joy. Because one has this onerous kind of have to, I ought to, and, and uh, we're resistant to the idea of submission. How am I going to have joy in that? Because in submission, there is also the idea in the context that you are belonging. And when you understand to whom you belong ultimately, then you can have no other feeling and expression of it than true joy. I belong to Christ. Do you understand what that means when you belong to Christ? It means I can just simply be submissive to Him. Job done. It's a relief to me that I don't have to figure out the political struggles going on right now. It's a relief to me that I don't have to figure out all the cultural, social, moral ills going on around us right now. It's a relief to me that I don't have to solve all these problems. It's a relief to me that I'm not responsible for all this. I am responsible for one thing, submission to my Lord. 
and my Lord will take care of the rest. See, if I do what I'm supposed to do, he does what he faithfully always does. And he sort of runs the world and he lets you live in it. And you can live in it all befuddled and worried and all that about it all around you. Or you can live with joy knowing that the one to whom I belong has it all in his hands. And nothing escapes his attention. So uh, the other day when I was looking at a particular particular headline that drops down or whatever they call it on my Yahoo account, um, and, and I had the tendency, had the temptation just for a moment there to just sell out my joy and be angry about, about this thing. I said, no, wait a minute. What does the one to whom I belong say about that? The hearts of men are wicked. Not only wicked, but what? Desperately wicked. Nothing's happening around us, but exactly what God said would happen around us. And in the midst of that, you can know joy because you belong to Christ. Now, how we get there, interesting, uh, interestingly enough, is by starting off with what is the most intimate and the most important and the most solemn and the strongest, most foundational covenant that God instituted on earth between two people. That's husbands and wives. It is the most solemn. It is the strongest. It is the strongest worded covenant in Scripture. And it is for life. And so Paul or Peter here begins to say in verse 3, he's going to talk to the wives first. Then he talks to the husband a little bit, what their duties are to one another. And we find in that this beautiful belonging that we have in Christ together but we also have a sense in which the wives have the joy of submission in belonging to their husbands. Now, I realize that's old-fashioned. In fact, I got kind of booed at a wedding rehearsal one time when I, I made the comment, and it's absolutely, absolutely true, that historically, you understand, when, when, the, when the father walks the bride down the aisle, right, and then they stop at the beginning, beginning they, at the end of the aisle, and the pastor says these words, uh, who gives this woman to be united with this man in holy matrimony? And the father says, her mother and I do. It's the only line the father has. Hopefully they can get it right. And then he symbolically takes the, the bride's hand and the groom comes forth and he places the bride's hand in the groom's hand and then he sits down. Now, historically what was happening there is there's this idea that before that moment, the daughter belonged to the father and lived under his authority. And as he's giving her away to be wed, he is taking his, uh, this is what I said, maybe I should, you know, his property, as it were, and he's transferring it to someone else. It happens to be the most precious thing he's ever had the joy of having in his life. And now he's transferring that joy to another person. Oh, I got booed. I was just sort of kidding. But historically, that's what it meant. I mean, it was just it was this picture of transferring authority and a belonging to. And we have to understand that because of the way the society has grown and our culture has begun to shape itself, we think any intimation that I belong to someone else or any intimation that I have to live under another human being's authority automatically causes us to wrinkle a little bit. And the fact of the matter is, 
It should bring us joy because in belonging and in submission, there's the idea that I know the blessings of the Savior and I can walk with this person in harmony as long as both parties are doing what they're supposed to be doing. I do not know any female that would bristle at the idea of being submissive to a husband if the husband will do what he's supposed to do when Peter gets there. And I'll talk about what Peter is really saying when he says be submissive to because it's not the onerous idea of I just have to do everything he says. That is not what Peter's talking about. When he talks about being submissive, he is talking about coming under the, the authority and protection and provision and love of the husband. And particularly at the day and time which was written, that was important for females because without that, they were very vulnerable. So Peter begins this way. In the same way. Now, I, I know we didn't get very far. In the same way, in what way? I mean, he's going to say something like that, in the same way, in the same way as what? Well, if you back up, the end of chapter 2, what has he talked about? Honoring authority. We had a lengthy uh, discussion about what that means when he talks about submitting yourself to the emperor and to the, the powers that are in our politics. And then he says, servants, be submissive, submissive to your masters. And so we talked about being submissive in the workplace. Then he gives Christ as the example. And then he says, in the same way. That's what? Everything above. And just as we are all called to be submissive to the governmental authorities that Christ and, uh, has allowed to come into being, then wives are to be submissive to their husbands. Now, again, don't misunderstand the word submissive. Because it doesn't mean that you're just obedient in the sense that you know he just bosses you around and so forth. It's the idea that you have an understanding and you live with an idea that you belong to this person. And by the way, that's a mutual idea. It is not when you get as though when you get married, uh, the wife gives herself to her husband, but the husband also gives himself to the wife. You belong to one another. And say, so, well, then why does he single out women to say that? Part of it's very cultural. Part of it's because that's God-ordained organization of the institution, if you will, of marriage. But it is also because part of the fall, if you go all the way back to Genesis 3, part of the fall, the result of the fall was what? That Eve's will should be to rule over her husband. And God knows that is going to be one of those things that humanity struggles with. And it will take discipline and submission to him to live in obedience to him. Because when he gets to what really is difficult for husbands sometimes, he tells us something different. Because while he tells the wives, and then Paul does the same thing, uh, while he tells the wives to be submissive, what's he tell the husbands? Love your wives more than yourself. Because that's difficult for us. So it's not the idea that you exclusively, exclusively as wives have obligations that husbands don't have. You know, you're just a little bit different. But trust me, to do what we're supposed to do is just as difficult for us without Christ. But if we learn to do it in Christ because we both belong to Christ, then a husband and wife can belong to one another and know the joy of submission. And so he says, wives... Be submissive to your husbands. Why? So that even if any of them may be disobedient to the word, in other words, they're lost, they don't know Christ, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. 
Now, <clears throat> one of the key phrases we might want to focus on there is they're one without a word. But you know, there are, I'm convinced, well-meaning spouses, and this could be true, I guess, of either spouse, if you, you happen to find yourself with someone who's not a believer and you really want them to be. Um, sometimes lesser is more in terms of words. And maybe if they just see the genuine, the humble, the faithful character in you that the Word talks about, they're more convinced than many words. Somebody once said, you know, you want to give somebody a drink of water. You know, a thirsty person wants a drink of water, but you don't open, the, you don't open a fire hydrant on it. Right? Sometimes a few words and then an excellent example of walking with Christ and faithful love towards that person does a lot more. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, and let not your adornment... So first of all, he says, look, be submissive, and let not your adornment be merely external. Braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. Now keep in mind that he's not saying braiding your hair is wrong. Now there are uh, denominations that, that would think that braiding the hair or adorning oneself with jewelry, and particularly makeup, might be wrong. Uh, in fact, I believe in Scotland, uh, Alistair Begg said one time uh, that many of you ladies would be taken from the building and had your faces truly scrubbed because they believe makeup would be wrong because it's adorning the outer person. He's not saying these things are wrong. In fact, he says merely. Don't merely adorn the outward person because, you know, putting on dresses. That's necessary. That's just, that's just a good idea. You should get dressed before you come to church. Now, we try not to be too restrictive here, but we do encourage clothing. So it's not that putting on dresses is wrong, but what he's saying is don't merely or just pay attention to the external person. But what? Let it be to the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality. Now, I love this phrase of quiet, gentle spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Now, if somebody said to you, I'm going to tell you something that is precious to God, wouldn't you want to know what it is? You know what's precious to God? And I think this, this is wives or husbands. This is his children in general. You know what's precious to God? A gentle and quiet spirit. One of the professors at Midwestern Seminary that I always just thought so highly of was Dr. Bean. Dr. Bean was our Old Testament professor. And he walked very slowly. Although it looked like, it looked slow because he was like seven foot. He was very, very tall. And so like one stride of his was like three of mine. Like you're like a child trying to keep up with him. So he appeared to always just be walking very slowly, although he was moving probably as fast as anybody. But he just had this gentle spirit about him. And I always thought of him, he was sort of the quintessential gentle giant, but a spiritual giant. And I thought to myself, I, how do you get that spirit? How do you get that spirit of gentleness and quiet and yet absolute authority? He was just so consistent in his walk with Christ. And so genuine, but quiet 
and gentle. And I am convinced whether your wife or husband, a quiet and gentle spirit is precious to God. That is not <laughs> by nature who some of us are. I'll just <laughs> some of us by nature might in fact be quite the opposite of whatever quiet and gentle is because quietly and gently is not the way we approach uh, well anything right um, and, and there are many times in my life where I find myself thinking I am not being quiet nor am I being gentle in fact I'm being quite loud and whatever the opposite of gentle is and yet it is quiet and gentle that's precious to God why? I think quiet and gentle reflects that you, re you recognize who you are. And the grace that's been poured out to you is the same grace that you extend to others. You think about it, when you're not quiet and you're not gentle, in fact, maybe you're angry, loud, boisterous, and rough, rude to people, you think, well, they're just wrong. They may well be. But so were you when God picked you up from the mire. Are you extending the grace that has been extended to you? When you walk in grace extended to others like it's been extended to you, then you just can't help being quiet and gentle. And that doesn't mean, obviously, just volume or whatever. You understand what he's saying in attitude. We're quiet and gentle which is precious to God. I don't often do a whole lot that I sit back and think, I bet that was precious to God. I don't know about you, I just I struggle with that sometimes. I wonder if God just found that attitude precious. But every once in a while, just every once in a while, I find it in my heart to extend grace to the Lord from the Lord to others. And I think, you know what? That was precious to God. Not proud. I'm not, you know, I don't want to ruin my humility because that's truly the most impressive thing about me. Um, but I'll tell you, uh, one time I felt that way. And I may have told you this before, but anyway, uh, when Tiffany was working at the school, a young lady hit her car and then left went parked somewhere else. Well, the school tape caught it. We found the young lady. She was very unrepentant, unrepentant, didn't care, really. I met with her and her dad, and her dad assured me that she was going to get a summer job and take care of this dent in the quarter panel, which turned out, you know, depending on where you take it, to be about $3,000 worth of damage. And uh, while, while I'm talking to her dad and her, and we're looking at this, I'm showing him the estimates I have. Um, she's making googly eyes at a boyfriend waiting in the car, giggling and caring. I mean, she never got a job, as far as I know, that summer, never paid a dime. And for the longest time, I would go out in the mornings and I'd look at that dent and just got away with it. And then I would beat myself up saying, well, that's because you wouldn't do anything about it. You just talk and talk and talk and talk, but you don't do it. Why didn't you call somebody? Why didn't you pursue it? My goodness, you have a law degree. Write something up and take them to court, take them to small claims court. Why didn't you do something about it? And, and I'd see that dent, and it would just take my joy. And you know what I decided one day? I said, you know what? If God took all my offenses 
And every time he looked on them, he was angry, rightfully so. And he said, you know what? I'm going to pour out my wrath on you because of something you did. In fact, you know what? Let's look at all the things you did. And yet then I began to realize God looked at those things and he poured out grace. So you know what I, I started calling that dent in my own mind? Did she get away with it? Yes, she did. Because that's the grace dent. Do I? Oh, I, you're not going to follow up? No, I'm going to remember it no more. Did she get away with it? Yes. It's the grace dent. And it reminded me of all that God has forgiven me. And so that dent went from making me angry that every time I went out to get in my car and I looked at her car and saw that dent, it caused me to say, thank you, Lord, for what you've forgiven me. And while it was not a nice dent, and yes, it, it brought the value of the car down and all that, you know what? I, it was a blessing to me. Because it caused me to have joy every time I walked by it. Because I thought in my mind about the wonder of the thought that my sin is nailed to the cross. What a burden that's lifted. That's the joy of submission. Now I can stand up for myself. I'm not going to submit to that. I'm, I'm going to get even. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to make her pay, get retribution, and all those things that the world tells us we ought to be doing. Or I can just submit to the authority of God and say, God, because you poured out your grace, I'm going to pour out some grace. And you know what I found in that? Joy. Simply doing what God asked me to do. And I did it because I belong to Him. And there is such security in belonging to Him. What's going to happen with the economy? I don't know. Ask the one to whom I belong. He knows. He's got it all in His hand. And I don't have to worry about it. What's going to happen politically? I don't know. What's going to happen culturally? Having a clue, you know what? I know the one to whom I belong. There's such joy in that. Living, living in submission to Him. So He says, look, adorn the hidden person of the heart. In other words, don't just dress up and play church. Put some, put some clothes on. In fact, Luke tells us that at the Last Supper, uh, the parable was uh, people came in and the, the, the owner said, some of these people aren't even dressed. Send them home and tell them to put on their best and then come to the supper. Now, I think that's a you know, spiritual illustration of putting on the Christ but the point is, he is not saying you can't try to, to adorn yourself in a way that is becoming. What he's saying is that's not all there is to you. And what should receive more importance is the internal person. Because most of us, if we were honest, we, we figure out how long it's going to take us to get dressed and do all the things that we need to do to walk out the door, how long it can take us to get to, uh, from our door to the church, and then uh, what time we're supposed to be there, and we simply back up that number of minutes, and that's when we set our alarm for. What about taking some time to adorn the inner person on a Sunday morning? Do you take time to, to prepare your heart? It says, for in this way, the gentle quiet spirits. He, he's talking about wives again. For in this way in the former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, 
again, the internal person, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you, you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. That's the other blessing of belonging. Not frightened by any fear. Now, to the husbands, he says this, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman and grant her as a fellow heir the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now sometimes I think we pick the passages, particularly those that instruct wives in some way and we think somehow that the Bible puts a higher onerous on the wives than do the husbands. But it seems to me that what he's just said to the husbands is pretty stern here. Because some people say, why should I submit to my husband? Well, the obvious and clear answer of Scripture is because he's your husband. You made that covenant. You've entered into that most precious covenant and commitment to one another. And if nobody told you, then they should have, that that's part of it. And you made that decision. And you made that commitment. But what if, that, what if somebody just said, well, because he's a man. Well, then that would throw up, throw up all kinds of red flags. But you know what Peter just said? Live with your wives in kindness as with a weaker vessel. Why? Because she's a woman. What's that got to do with it? Because she's a woman. Do you know there's a different Hebrew word for the creation of man and the creation of woman? The Hebrew word when it says God created the male is to make, to construct. Men are pickup trucks. We're utilitarian. We're just like, you know, a tool in the shop. God said, I need this done, I'll make, I'll make man. So he made us a certain way. Some of us are more like box trucks. But my point is, you know, men are just utilitarian. The, the Hebrew word for when he made woman is to fashion. Different word. Subtly different, but what it indicates is one indicates a refineness and an attention to detail. She's a woman. Magnificently fashioned by your Creator. And simply because she is a woman, you need to treat her with honor because she is a woman and a fellow heir of the grace of life. Uh, some of you know I'm teaching a couple of classes at the Christian High School here in Springfield where Sydney is also teaching and I have the opportunity to teach an American government class and a sort of an intro to law class. I'm trying to bring a very Christian biblical perspective to those two classes. It's been so much fun. Um, we have 80 minute classes, so that's 160 minutes a day at times five that I lecture. So you'd be thinking, surely by Sunday he's I, the sermon's just got to get shorter because nobody can talk that much, but apparently I can. But we were talking, and one of the classes very full, and, and a young lady walked in, and uh, there's no place to sit, not a desk to be had. So she, she was just leaning against the wall. I said, Miss Williams, we'll find you a seat just a moment. And I looked around, there was no seats to be had, and I said, uh, 
Gentlemen, a little chivalry here might be in order. And they just sat there looking at me. Some what? I said, chivalry. Oh, is that like cars and Chevys and, you know, no, no, no. I said, all right, chivalry, I wrote on the board. What do we think of it? Chivalry. Not a clue. Not a clue. I said, well, chivalry is sort of the tradition that maybe males give deference to females in certain situations and put them above our own needs. For example, you might hold a door for a young lady. You might open her, her car door. I said, so in this context, you might stand up and say, you know what? I will stand. Please take my seat. And the response was immediate. And I'm afraid to say fairly endemic. Why? Why would I do that? And you know what I said? I said, because she's a woman. And you know what they said? No way. Equal rights, equal work, I say. And this is like all the boys. I mean, this is, this is your next generation boy. Well, I'm not going to. Why? They're going to put myself out just because she's a girl, you know. And uh, I was dismayed. I was just disappointed. I said, well, chivalry is not dead, but clearly it's badly wounded. And I said, so there is not a young man among you who would actually be willing to stand or sit on the floor so that a young lady might have a place to sit down. I said, I hope you never date. I said, you might hold a door for your date or pull her chair out. They do it themselves. Finally, one young man did offer his chair, which, for which I thanked him. But why, they said, well, because she's female. She's a lady. I said, they are the finer and more refined of the two genders. So, you know, that, that's the way God made them. Maybe, they said, well, they can open doors. I said, it's when I hold the door for my wife, it is not because I think she is incapable of opening a door. Okay? When I pull her chair out, it's not because I think she's so weak that she can't pull a chair out. It's like, have you met my wife? Okay, She is fully capable of taking care of those things. I don't do it because she can't. That's not the point. I do it because you know why? She deserves more honor than me. In fact, I think just by nature of being a female, she deserves for me, the lowly utilitarian male, to open the door for her. It is a sign of respect that, you know what, not only do I think you're equal, I secretly believe, although I'm not going to tell my buddies this, I believe you are better than men. And God has made you more refined. And God has made you more excellent and paid more attention to detail. And he has said to me, because they are ladies, treat them with honor. Foreign concepts, apparently, to ninth and 10th graders coming up. But that's what Peter says. Because, and that's why he's always about the weaker vessel. It's not talking about physical strength. I, I I think you probably understand that. Or he's certainly not talking about the lesser valued vessel. They are to be highly esteemed and given honor. 
for the simple fact that that's the way God created them. And then, not only does he put this on the husbands, ours comes with sort of a caveat. Do this, or your prayers will be hindered. That, that doesn't seem fair, or it doesn't. The wives didn't get some kind of or else, but yet the, the, the men get an or else. And I think this means twofold. First of all, when you don't treat husbands, your wife, with honor and dignity, and not only that, but when you don't put her on a pedestal just a little bit and take care of her, not because she can't, but because you believe and you know she's, she's really, I married up. I know I did. And let me tell you something. Men, if you're married, you married up. If you don't do that just a little bit, you're living in disobedience. And then you go ask God to do something for you or give, make our petitions known. But also, I think it means this. Just humanly speaking, it's difficult, at least for me, and maybe, and maybe other husbands are different. But if I'm having a... Oh, how to say this creatively. If I'm having one of those seasons of life or moments and times when I'm not exactly seeing eye to eye with my lovely bride, um, you understand what I'm saying? Uh, if I'm having one of those times, I find it difficult to pray. Not because I don't think God is hearing me or your prayers aren't heard. It's just, it's hard to pray. Because you just have this nagging, splinter-like feeling. You know, you know, I'm just, I'm at odds with this person with whom I'm supposed to be one, who you, you've asked me to live with in dignity and honor, and yet there's this anger, and I'm not being able to, and so I find it hard to pray, because every time I come into God's presence, that's what is, that's what's on my mind. Now, the, the best I can come up with is, Lord, you got to change her, you know. Oh, I, you know, it actually helps my prayer life in some ways that way, you know, Lord. <laughs> you know. And so often I felt like God saying, yeah, i got to change somebody, all right. <laughs> but the joy of just submitting ultimately to God Wives to your husbands, and yes, husbands to your wives, because that's the way Paul rounds out the whole discussion in Ephesians, does he not? Submit yourselves, therefore, what? To one another. That's the joy. Because when you learn to submit to your wife, and your wife submits to you, and you belong, you take on the world. There's a great scene in the movie, uh, the name of which I cannot now remember, Anyway, it's uh, Brad Pitt. I think it's Mr. and Mrs. Smith, right? The whole movie, they're fighting each other, right? I, I, I think I played this on video one time at a church because it's the scene where he comes home and they shoot up the house trying to kill each other. <laughs> you know, he's like, honey, I'm home. And she shoots, like, holds her to the wall with a big 12-gauge, and you know. And I said, hopefully it's not like this when you come home from work, fellas. But at the end of the movie, there's this beautiful sort of dance, choreographed, slow motion fight scene thing. How are you getting biblical truth out of a fight scene? But here's, you know, at one point, 
they're sort of embracing and she's got the two machine guns and she's shooting behind him and he's got his arms under her arms so they're sort of hugging and he's shooting behind her and it's her and it's him like this against the world. And I think that's what it's about. If a married couple can learn, they just embrace one another and they are one. And take on everybody else. Because the world's going to try to tear you apart. And the reason is, it is a picture of Christ and His church. It's beautiful to God. Belong to Him? Um, tell you what, we may be surprised and temporarily dismayed, but we just keep coming back to the incomparable joy of belonging. Let's pray.